0: Let's look at Luke chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 46 through 50. If you don't have a Bible, the passage is on the screen here. Uh, Follow along as we study and uh, consider the word of God. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. I'm going to give you a moment of silent prayer just to ask God to speak into your life this morning. Father, we come together this morning as a a group of believers who have identified ourselves as Green Tree Community Church. Father, within our small community, we have many, many different uh, thoughts and ideas about what it means to be part of the kingdom of God, how that should play itself out in our lives. Father, our, our guests and our visitors here this morning, Uh, may have considered that. They may have have never uh, thought of that this morning. So we come from a variety of different backgrounds. But Lord, it's good to be together. Uh, Those of us who are here every Sunday and and, uh, those who we welcome here this morning, perhaps for the first time, we're so thankful that you've drawn us to this place because this message is for each one of us. And it challenges the way we think. And it challenges the priorities we set. And it challenges the way we live our lives. And it calls us to something much deeper and much more profound. But, Father, it's hard to see. It's hard to understand because the world sings a different song and the music is tempting to follow and to listen and to embrace. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, shake the cobwebs out of our minds, as it were, this morning and, and allow the distractions of the last week or what our plans are for this afternoon to be set aside for a few moments. And, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do what only you can do, and that is to open our hearts and our minds and expose us to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. that as we refocus on him this morning, that you would come and do that work in each heart in this room. Father, I confess my sin to you. I acknowledge that, that I'm probably not the person who ought to be up here, uh, but I don't make that decision you do. And so, Lord, I trust that and pray that you would uh, not let me mess this up, that you would not allow my sin to get in the way of what you want to teach us this morning but that you would uh, speak your truth into each of our lives. I we'll pray in Christ's name, amen. Let me give you just a real, real brief context for this uh, passage of scripture. Uh, the disciples are walking along with Jesus. And uh, just before these verses, Jesus has once again said to him, look, let me let me make sure I'm very, very clear with you. Uh, we're getting ready to head up to Jerusalem. When that happens, I'm going, to be, uh, I'm going to be put to death. I'm going to be handed over to evil men. I'm going to be uh, beaten and I'm going to die. And third, three days later, I'm going to raise uh, from the dead. So Jesus has once again warned his disciples about the difficulty of following him. The danger of following him is that he's going into harm's way. Right after that conversation, as they're walking along the road, probably the same day, maybe the, maybe the very next day, but certainly within a very brief time of having this conversation once again, where Jesus has warned his disciple, a debate breaks out. And in verse 46, Luke tells us that an argument arose among them, that being the 12 disciples or 12 apostles, as to which one of them was the greatest. Now, I would love to have been sitting here and listening to this conversation. I I have kind of my own imagination of how it went. But if you think about uh, the guys who are Jesus' 12 little buddies, you know, if you think about the guys that walk around with them all the time, and what they might have put forward as the reason why they were the best. I just kind of let my mind run a little bit free this week and and, uh, thought about this. You know, Matthew might have said, you know, I don't know what, you know, you guys are talking about about being great. All you guys were, you know, pretty poor, middle class, lower class guys. I left a lucrative business. I was making money hand over fist, and now I'm not sure where my next meal comes. Certainly, that counts for something. I've got to be one of the greatest. Philip, who was the, uh, he was the recruiter of the group, he was always bringing people to Jesus. Philip probably looked around the group and said, half you guys wouldn't be here if it wasn't for me telling you about Jesus in the first place. So that's got to count for some importance within the kingdom. Uh, James, who was, who was one of the, uh, the brothers, James and John, he had just come down a few days before from the Mount of Transfiguration, and he probably looked around the group and said, you know, not many of you can say that you've actually seen Moses and Elijah face to face. You know, Jesus chose me to be one of the guys who had that experience, so y'all better be pretty nice to me because I'm sure I'll have a pretty prominent place in the kingdom of God. John, the younger one, probably said, well, you know what, I'm the youngest of the group and I have the most potential. I'm going to be around the longest. You know, a lot of you guys are old, and quite frankly, your best days are behind you, and it's a good thing that Jesus called me, or who knows where this deal would be in 20 or 30 years. Jesus probably looked at all of them and said, you know what, Jesus put me in charge of the money, and Thomas probably said, well, I doubt that was a very good idea. I'm so glad you got that joke, because I was, I've been thinking about that all weekend, I'm going, I wonder if they're going to, it's so cornball, but I just, I hope they get it. I think maybe there's a laugh, you know, sign behind me, you know, be nice to Tom and laugh. Peter probably said, hey, have any of you guys ever walked on water? To which Andrew, his brother, responded, hey, have any of you guys almost drowned because you took your eyes off Jesus? You know, my brother's a knucklehead. But this argument is going on back and forth, and you can just kind of picture Jesus walking along either a little bit ahead of him or a little bit behind him. Uh, Matthew tells us he wasn't involved in the conversation, but he could overhear it. He knew what was going on. So you have uh, this debate happening. Now, I think you, we read this verse, and I think we assume that there's pride or there's ego involved, and, and pretty immediately, and, and I do this, and I've heard sermons on this, pretty immediately we go to say, you know, how do those guys not get it? How could they just be so filled with themselves and, and wanting the place of prominence after spending almost three years with Jesus? But But I want to put a little different touch on that. I don't, Think that it was necessarily just pride or just ego, although I think that was involved. But I think that each one of these men genuinely had a desire to have a great impact for Jesus' kingdom. I think these guys took seriously the call of Christ in their life, even though they didn't understand it, even though they didn't get all of it quite yet. The Holy Spirit hadn't come into their lives yet. We don't have that until, until uh several uh months from this experience on the day of Pentecost. So that they they're looking at it just from a from a partial point of view, but I think their hearts maybe, in a sense, were in the right place. They're saying, you know, I really want to do great things for Jesus. I'm so glad he chose me so that I could help out. And I don't think that attitude in and of itself is completely misinformed. Dwight L. Moody was one of the greatest evangelists that was ever produced in the United States. He lived and ministered in the 19th century, and he said this, and it is a quote that probably a lot of you have heard before. He said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. Now, typically, we stop the quote right there. Moody's quote says, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated him. But there's another sentence in that quote that we often leave out. And Moody says, by God's help, I aim to be that man. I think that's a lofty and noble goal but it's fraught with danger and it's fraught with uh, a misunderstanding because as you and I define greatness is not necessarily how Jesus defines greatness. So the debate is raging back and forth and Jesus overhears them. And it says in verse uh, 47, Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. It's almost like the debate's going back and forth, and Jesus just kind of quietly steps into the conversation and kind of waits for everything to die down. He sees a teaching moment. Jesus understands what's going on in their hearts. So I'm here this morning, and I'm kind of surmising what it might be. Jesus knew what their motives were. He knew how pure they were or how unpure they were, and it was probably a combination of both. And so he grabs a little child. The word there in the Greek is, is probably one for uh, a, a, a little youngster, maybe a five- or six-year-old, a small child, not an infant, a little bit above that, but certainly not a, a teenager. So you've got a, maybe, a, maybe a kindergartner would be the way we might put it. And he says, I've got a teachable moment here. Uh, and maybe he thought, you know, they're, they're starting to get on the right track, and I just need to, uh, to, to move them a little bit. Or he might think, boy, they're really going in the wrong direction. But here's my chance. And he probably walks over to a mom who's in the group and says, hey, can I borrow a little Johnny for just a second? I'll, I'll bring him right back to you. And then he teaches the lesson, verse 48. And he says to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Jesus says, do you really want to strive for greatness? Guys, is that really your motive? Is that really your intention? Well, that's a great motive to have. That's a wonderful intention, but you've got to follow my paradigm. You see, the smallest are the ones that are most important. And it's not about what you can get out of this relationship. It's not about a a place of prominence or a place of power, but rather it's what you can give to those who are most needy. And a child demonstrates that probably the best. How many of us see uh, pictures of uh, little children who uh, are malnourished and want to reach out to them uh, in some way? There's something about a small child who is who is vulnerable, uh, even if she cries a little bit when when I walk her down. Now, there's still something about just wanting to hold on to that little one and protect them and care for them. There's something that brings that out. And Jesus says, that's the path to greatness, the care for those are the least of these. Um, This last uh, week and a half, we've been scrambling because we had to cancel our uh, high school mission trip to Honduras because uh, there was an airplane crash there on the 30th of May, and the airport's been closed for a month, and it may open uh, next week. It might not, and so we didn't want to spend money on plane tickets to not be able to use them, so we've been looking for an alternative. We found a great alternative. We're going to, uh, our high school students are going to be going to Guatemala. Now, that might ring a bell with some of you because uh, Russ Moore, who leads worship with us from time to time, and his wife Katie adopted little Elliot from Guatemala. But what you may or may not remember is that Katie Moore spent six months in Guatemala waiting for the adoption to go through. There were all kinds of red tape and snags, and all of us kind of said all along, gosh, why on earth is Katie having to spend all this time in Guatemala? Well, this mission trip might be part of the answer, but what's interesting when we talked to Katie this last week, and she was making all the plans and helping us put this together, she said, I'm working with my friend Melissa, who was, who was down there longer than me and still down there, uh, and she's, she's talking about what they're going to do and the children's hospital they're going to go to, and she keeps talking about Melissa. And so I said, Katie, who is Melissa? And she tells me Melissa's story, who's a young woman who's adopting a child from Guatemala who ran into some of the red tape problems that Katie ran into, but on a much more severe level. And the government will not let Melissa leave the country with this child. So you know what Melissa's response to that is? I guess God wants me to live in Guatemala. And she's moved to that country to take care of that child. I was impressed by folks selling their houses and moving to Lafayette Square. You know, this kind of takes it to a whole nother level. But you know what? She gets it. She understands it. She says that's the paradigm. Don't ever stop striving for greatness, but you've got to go about it in the right way. And so he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now, I think Jesus put that word very carefully. That word receive in the Greek means that you welcome someone into your home. Anybody who opens the door and says, come on in, you know, come on in for supper, come, you know, come be part of the the family evening we're going to enjoy. But in Jewish society, in Middle Eastern tradition, Uh, The person who is under your roof, the person who is your visitor, who comes in for dinner or who is staying overnight as they're on a trip and you take them under your roof, that is a very, very serious obligation. That receiving means that I am now providing for you. I am now caring for you. Whatever happens to you under my roof happens to me as well. It's not like me saying, hey, come on over for dinner and, and afterwards, you know, we'll play some cards or something, then you'll go home. Where it's kind of a light, casual kind of commitment. This was the most serious of commitments. To welcome you into my home meant that I was responsible for your physical, emotional, spiritual well-being. Jesus says if you receive this child, which means it's not just patting them on the head and saying, oh, aren't they cute, but committing ourselves to the nurture and care and protection spiritually and emotionally of the least of these is the call that Jesus places on us as the path to greatness. I saw a picture this week. Somebody sent me a bunch of uh, e-pictures of uh, soldiers in Afghanistan. And there was a picture of a Marine who was in the middle of a firefight, and he was bringing a small child out of a house. And you could see the way he was moving, that the the, the fight was kind of behind him, and he had this child literally completely covered up with his body, as if to say nothing's going to harm you. As long as I have a hold of you. Now, friends, that's the word Jesus uses there. Is that my commitment to the least of these? Is that my commitment to the children of Green Tree Community Church, of those who can't help themselves, who need our guidance, who need our direction, who need our care? Jesus says, if you follow that paradigm, then the least is the greatest. And I think he says that because it points us to the Father. Because who was God the Father concerned about when he sent his son to the earth to die on the cross for your sins and my sins if it weren't for the least of these? Friends, if we're talking about the ability to save ourselves, we are the least. We can't do it. It's not possible. And God saw our situation as as that Marine saw that child's danger, and he covered us up with his love and his compassion and his glory through his son and his death that pays the price for my sins. And then he says to us, now, if you want to be great, go and reflect that to the world. Think about who are the great ones at at Green Tree Community Church. As I started making my list and thinking about it, I didn't, no, no offense guys, but I didn't write down any of the elders' names. I didn't write down my name or any of the other pastors'. I started writing down the names of the men and the women who try to figure out how to get an eight-year-old to understand what the cross is all about. I wrote down the names of people who would actually want to hang out with ninth-grade high school boys. (laughs) I've done that before. Who would want to do that? (laughs) And I could tell you stories because I've had two of them, but I'll pass on that one. But you get my point. So folks who this next week are going to spend five days with our children in vacation Bible school giving of their time freely. It's the men and women who go into the classrooms on Sunday morning and try to help our children understand the love of Christ. You ought to try this sometime. If you're a parent, you have little ones. We had an assignment once at a Bible study group we were in, a discipleship group we were in, and the assignment was this. Explain the word sanctification. Now, uh, sanctification is a word that means growing up in your faith. Uh, maturing as a follower of Jesus. It means when you start out, you're kind of like a little kid and you got to learn and grow and, 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 and mature and nurture as you, as you go on. And that's what the word sanctification means. But I said, try and explain that to a sixth grader. Well, we haven't, Nathan happened to be in sixth grade at the time. And I remember us sitting on the bed, sitting, I sitting on the bed with Nathan, trying to explain sanctification. And he just kind of went, uh okay. <laughs> and I said this new appreciation for people who can who can look eyeball to eyeball with a child and make it real and make it understandable. Those are the people that are great. You know why we don't have children's sermons at Green Tree? Some of you suggest from time to time, have have a children's sermon, bring all the kids up. Every time I do this I get outwitted by these children. Okay. The last time I did this, I had a group of them up here. It literally was probably two years ago. And, uh, and I had like four or five beanie babies and I was doing some kind of little story thing with beanie babies. And you know, the beanie babies come with a little tag that has the name on it. And so I'm going, you know, I'm making up names and I'm going, well, this is George and this is Fred. And one little girl shot her hand up. She goes, no, 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 no. And she told me the correct names of all of them in front of hundreds of people. So I don't do children's messages because I'm not smart enough. <laughs> But the greatness of the kingdom of God is saying, you know what? We better make sure that the smallest among us get it. We better make sure we commit ourselves to that task because that's what God did for us. John asks a clarifying question in verse 49. This seems a bit out of place. Jesus is calling his disciples to a greatness that looks very different than the world's greatness. And John pops up and he says, Master, he answers Jesus. So he's responding to what Jesus has just said. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Now, you look at that passage, you think, John, were you listening? (laughs) We're, We're talking about the least of these. But I think what John, I think John's mind is moving. I think he's a pretty smart guy. He wrote a gospel. He's got to be pretty smart. He wrote three epistles as well. He's got to really be smart. And he wrote the book of Revelation. So he's got some brains in his head. I think what he's doing is putting two and two together. I think he's saying, well, Lord, if we got that wrong, <laughs> I think maybe we got something else wrong too. <laughs> so can you help me? I, I, I hear what you're saying about this. Now, can you help me with this issue? He says, we saw this guy casting out demons, but we stopped because he wasn't part of our small group. And Jesus then takes the lesson to the next level. And he talks not only about those who are the, who are the weakest or who are the smallest, but now he talks about a partnership per- perspective that needs to be within the body of Christ. And Jesus said to him in verse 50, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. In a sense, Jesus is saying to John and to the other disciples and to you and me this morning, you know, you have to understand that neutrality about me is an impossibility. You can't be neutral about Jesus. You're either for Jesus or you're against Jesus. Now, you might say, well, I've never, you know, I I don't believe in Jesus, but I've never, you know, made a big deal out of that. That's just kind of my personal opinion I keep to myself. Well, that may be true. You may be passively against Jesus, but you are against Jesus or you're for Jesus. You say, gee, I'm not the greatest disciple in the world. I mess it up and I, I don't get it right, but you're following, you're for him. And Jesus says, there's no neutrality. My claim of Messiahship, my claim to be the son of man out of Daniel chapter 6, that claim demands a choice. But I think Jesus then is going on to say to John, you know, my non-negotiable list, John, it's pretty short. What it means to be my disciple, there are only a few key things that you've got to embrace to be my disciple. And I went back and kind of read some other teachings of Jesus, and, I, and I've come up with three very simple things. Jesus adamantly said that the word of God is just that, it's the word of God. It's not nice words. It's not thoughtful, you know, proverbs that somebody wrote down, but it's actually the God breathed word through the Holy Spirit. You gotta believe that. You gotta embrace that because Jesus did. The other non-negotiable, the second one, was Jesus' identity. Jesus said, I am the Son of God, I am the Messiah. I'm God in the flesh, and you've got to embrace that. You can't take Jesus as a prophet or a good teacher or a nice guy or even a lunatic. You have to, if you're going to be his disciple, you have to accept him as the one who has come from God and is equal to God. And then the third thing is simply his mission. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. The cross is all about somebody dying in your place to pay the penalty for your sins and for my sins. And after that, you know what, friends? That's the end of my list. I think that's pretty much the end of Jesus' list. Now, why do I say that? I say that because I think the church as a whole finds more to bicker and fight over than it does to unify over. And I think Jesus is saying, if they're not against you, guys, (laughs) use some common sense here. They're they're for you. There are lots of incidentals within the church. You may may have a prayer language. You may may pray in what we call tongues. I don't have a prayer language. My wife prays in tongues sometimes. I've never been given that gift. But you know what? We cohabitate under the same roof, and we love each other like crazy. We're not going to fight over that. Some of us meet in a school to worship. If you've been here for the first time, you're going, this is kind of an odd bulldog station. What a strange name, you know, for a sanctuary. We agree, (laughs) but it kind of works for us. Other people worship in a sanctuary. You know what? So what? doesn't matter. We baptized the little baby this morning. Some people only baptize adults. You know what? That doesn't have anything to do with the identity and mission of Jesus and believing the word of God. And I think Jesus understood our, our proclivity and our tendency to be critical of one another. I think he understood that, 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 that tendency comes out of the fact that it makes me feel better about myself if I can put somebody else down. If I can be critical of someone, it makes me feel better about myself. And Jesus says that's not the pathway to greatness. Do they believe in the Word of God? Do they believe in my identity? Do they believe in my mission? Have they embraced me as their Savior? Then you have everything in common that is important. Let the world see you love one another in a way that's a witness to the fact that I've come to save sinners. Friends, I I really want to be a, a great disciple, <laughs> and I and I get it wrong so often. You wouldn't believe it. Those of you that know me do believe it. I want to be the pastor of a great church, but not by the world's definition. I don't care if we meet in a cafeteria. Or we meet outside in a tent. I don't care. If we have a whole lot of money or we have very little money, I shouldn't say that. You need to keep giving, please. I need to keep giving. Summer months, lean months are ahead. Keep up with your your pledges. I'm not worried about all that other stuff. I think what Jesus said about his disciples being great is so radically different than how I live most of the time. And my guess is that maybe there's a challenge in it for you as an individual, for us as a congregation. A great church, a great disciple, cares about the smallest, cares about the least, and doesn't fight over the incidentals, but put, puts Christ to center and foremost in all that we do in order that more people may see him. May God give us the grace to be great disciples of a great Savior. Let's pray.